one of the most important questions of the Bible is why did the nation of Israel reject Jesus? Now, obviously, some believed, but there was, at that moment at the cross, there was a widespread rejection of his claim to be the Messiah. Why is that? Well, the answer is that the Jewish people generally did not believe that the Messiah would suffer and die. Rather, when he came, he would liberate them from the bondage of the Romans. He would bring renewal to the earth, and he would establish his reign over the nations. Jesus understood things much differently. He believed the Old Testament did teach that the Messiah would first suffer and die before returning again. And he repeatedly predicted that he would be arrested, he would be beaten, he would be killed. After his resurrection, in Luke 24, he was walking along the Emmaus Road, and he had a conversation with two of his disciples. And they were upset because Jesus had been crucified, and they didn't understand these things. And Jesus said to them these words, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So in other words, they were, these things Jesus says were taught in the Old Testament, and they were so plain that they should have understood them. And he says to the disciples, all the disciples, um, a little bit later in the same chapter, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So was it predicted in the Old Testament that the Messiah should suffer and die? Jesus says yes, but many of his Jewish brethren said no. He said, well, how can we understand? How can we you know, make sense of those two sides? Well, we need to go to the Old Testament, the common bond that they would have had, the source of authority and truth, and say, what did the Old Testament actually say? And as we do so, there's one passage in particular that shines out, that tells us the answer to this monumental question. And that, of course, is Isaiah chapter 53. So let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. As, we're, as you're turning there, and we're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah, only one more message after today with the book of Isaiah. And the question that we've been dealing with the last few weeks is this question of now that they're coming back from exile and God has promised to bring restoration to Israel, how on earth is he going to do this? And as we've seen, this mysterious figure called the servant is going to rise to prominence. And we've been seeing this growing profile of the servant that appears in four passages in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 42, we saw that the, the servant, he's going to be gentle. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 49, we saw that the servant is going to bring reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. He's going to bring salvation to the whole world. We also caught a hint, though, that he's going to face opposition in his task. Isaiah 50 teaches that opposition is going to escalate to the point that it's physical opposition, physical assault to him. Now, in Isaiah 53, the opposition climaxes in his death. Amazingly, the same servant who redeems Israel and brings redemption to the Gentiles, 
he is going to suffer death at the very people he came to save. So here's an outline of the passage in Isaiah 53. There are five sections. Each section has three verses. Last week we covered the first three sections. So pick up with me, if you will, in verse 7. We're going to come to the fourth part of this incredible, incredible passage. I mean, every, every verse is just loaded with significance here in Isaiah 53. But, so this fourth part is the silence of the servant. The silence of the servant. It says in verses 7 to 9, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the servant is afflicted, yet he doesn't open his mouth. Isaiah compares him to a lamb that, when it's led to the slaughter, will just passively go along to its death. Or a sheep that, before it is sheared, will just be silent along the way. And so Jesus fulfills this prophecy about the silence of the servant. The four Gospels recount how Jesus would, uh, was silent in various ways before his accusers. He did say a few things in their midst, but in general, it's incredible that he does not try to defend, to defend himself. He doesn't try to escape what he is about to face, as most people in that situation would do, right? We'd be trying to say something to defend ourselves. So when Jesus stands before the Jewish religious leaders, they were hurling all these false accusations against him, but he stood silent. When he stood before Herod Antipas, he didn't say anything. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, he remained silent. It says in Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 14, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now I need to clarify, the silence of Jesus was not because he couldn't give a response. Just a few days before, uh, Jesus you know, rebuked them in front of the crowds when they tried to trick him with their questions. You remember that? And how Jesus just showed their you know, their. their blasphemy and their ignorance of the scriptures and so forth. So Jesus could have said something if he wanted to, and he could have silenced them. But that time was over. Now the time had arrived for him to suffer and to die. And so Jesus was like a sheep that passively goes to its death. But keep in mind, church, there's a crucial distinction between Jesus and an animal like that. Jesus willingly chose to be silent and to go to his death at the hands of his oppressors who would take his life. In John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus chose to be silent. Verse 8 if you remember, Jesus emphasizes that he was 
or the passage in Isaiah emphasized that he was unjustly taken away and killed for the transgressions of his people. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy as well. Scholars point out how the, the supposed trial before the religious leaders, what was called the Sanhedrin, how this was a mockery, how they didn't even follow their own rules of conducting a trial. Uh, for example, they forbid having a trial at night. They forbid immediately putting someone to death. Those things were forbidden by their own rules, but they did exactly those things, didn't they? The death of Jesus, I would argue, was the greatest display of human injustice. The sinless Son of God killed by wicked men. But as Isaiah asked in verse 8, who really understood? Who really responded, right, in that moment? And the answer is not many, right? There should have been an uproar in the city as people were finding out what was happening in their midst. But there was hardly any response at all. You know, I was thinking about how when you're going through a tough time, it's, it's a lot easier to go through it when you know people are around you, they're supporting you, they're encouraging you, they're praying for you. And so when Jesus was experiencing basically the worst injustice that's ever taken place, he was all by himself for all intents and purposes. Verse 9, we read about the remarkable change in circumstances after the servant's death. They made his grave with the wicked, as it said there, but he was buried with the rich and given an honorable burial. You know, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as well. Normally, crucifixion victims would have been thrown to the dogs after they died, or they would have been buried in a shallow grave. And that would have been Jesus' fate if it not were for a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was a secret follower of Jesus. He was a rich man too. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And make no mistake about it, this was a big deal that he just did by asking for Jesus' body. Because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Remember that? The same group that had condemned Jesus. <laughs> and so there, to go and ask to give this enemy of theirs an honorable burial, he was putting himself at risk. But he went ahead and did it. And amazingly enough, Pilate agreed to the request and he gave Jesus' body to, to Joseph of Arimathea and they wrapped him in this linen shroud and they put his body in his own tomb in this, in this tomb that was cut out of a rock wall. It's remarkable, isn't it? The details of this prophecy. Jesus couldn't even control this, right? This was out of his hands, but yet it still unfolded because this is what the word of the Lord had predicted 700 years earlier. So the fifth part, the last part of our passage, is the exaltation of the servant. I told you before, when we started this passage, it's not just about his death, but it culminates in his exaltation. So let's read verses 10, or just read verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And we just saw how the servant chose to die. He chose to follow this path. But it also says there that it was the will of the Lord to bring this about. Now, I don't want you to have in your mind that the Lord has some type of, you know, sadistic anger that he was displaying toward the servant. Rather, 
the cross, I believe, not only was the greatest display of human injustice, but it was also the greatest display of divine justice. And what I mean by that is that God is so determined to uphold His standard of justice that He wouldn't allow somehow sin to be atoned for without a suitable sacrifice. And so therefore, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son who willingly did this on our behalf so that sin would be atoned for. It can't be swept under the rug. Isn't that amazing? His love for us. So this was God's plan. It wasn't some sort of plan B, right? This was the plan before time ever began. Acts 2.23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. A little later, Acts 4.27-28 say, For truly in this sea they were gathered together against your holy servant, there again, servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was part of the will of God. Incredibly humbling, isn't it? Also notice that the servant's guilt, there in verse 10, makes an offering for guilt. So he will take the place of our sin. And this is fascinating, too, because in the Old Testament, how was atonement for sin carried out. It was by the sacrifice of an animal, right, where their blood would be shed to cover sin. Never is there a case of human death atoning for sin. But here, it does take place because Jesus alone is sinless, and He is able to pay for that sin. And He alone is God, and so His death could atone not only just for one person, but could atone for all people who believe in Him. Takes away our guilt. What is the result of his sacrifice? It says, the servant shall see his offspring. I think he's talking about physical children here. Because, he, because in Isaiah, it already talked about the servant would redeem ch- uh, people from Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about his spiritual offspring, his followers. He also says that the servant shall prolong his days. Now pay attention to this one. Isaiah, he doesn't specifically use the word resurrection. But that's the clear implication, isn't it? Right? The servant prolongs his days. Death is not going to be the end of the story here with the servant. We just saw that, didn't we? That Jesus has the power to raise himself from the dead. And that's exactly what he did. Amen? He did that three days later. When he died, he rose again to vindicate his claims to be the Messiah. It was interesting in, in you know, studying about Isaiah 53, I, I came across the Jewish group known as the Chabad Labovitch. Chabad Labovitch is a group of Orthodox Jews who believe that the Messiah was a man named Menachem Schneerson. He died in 1994, and his grave is in Queens, New York. They believe Isaiah 53 points to the Messiah, and they believe that the Messiah was this man named Menachem Schneerson. Interestingly, uh, after I read this, a couple of days later, our church gets an email from a, a congregation here in Connecticut, and the rabbi asked our church, is there, is there anything that we could be, you know, to mention to him, to pray about, because he was going down to the, the burial site of this guy. Well, I thanked him for his kind offer and, and just respectively invited him to go check out Isaiah53.com. 
because it's a tremendous website that shares people's personal stories with a Jewish background about how they came to find that Jesus was the Messiah. Also sent another link, uh, a great website that shows the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection. You see, Isaiah 53 does declare that Jesus will, or excuse me, that the Messiah will rise again. That's part of his job description, right? The Messiah is going to rise again. And no one else has ever done this except Jesus. Verse 11, we read, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. So now the Lord is the one speaking. He began this passage. Now he's going to close it. And so he talks about how the servant observes what has taken place and he's satisfied because his mission was accomplished, right? He brought redemption. He's also called, as it says there, the righteous one. Back in verse 7, we saw that he, he, he had no deceit in his mouth. He had carried out no violence. Now we've we got to go to the next level here. He's called the righteous one. The righteous one. Of course, Jesus fulfilled that, didn't he? He was sinless. Remember what he said to the crowds in John 8, 46? Remember how he looked out to all of them and he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? The answer was no one. No one could convict him of sin. 1 John 3, 3, 5 says, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. There's even more here in this passage. The servant makes us righteous. He makes us righteous. Jesus fulfilled this too. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, You should know this verse. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? When you believe in Christ, He takes our sin and we receive His righteousness. People call this the great exchange We give him our sin. We receive his righteousness. And we need to think long and hard about this reality. Because sometimes I think as Christians, we think, okay, when we get, we we become Christians at conversion, our sins are wiped away, the slate is, is wiped clean, and so forth. But from then on, it's kind of up to us, right? That how God sees us depends on our actions. It all it all depends on us. And certainly our actions do matter. We've not appropriated this enough in our lives. We've been declared righteous. We have Christ's righteousness given to us. And so when God sees us now, He sees the righteousness of Christ. When He sees you on Judgment Day, He's going to see the righteousness of Christ. That's a big relief, amen? What a joy that is, that we're not only acquitted, but we're given his righteousness. Finally, we come to the last verse in verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. To start that verse, the image is really of a conqueror who's won this great battle and victory, and he comes back as they would in those days, and they would divide the spoils of their conquering. And this is what Jesus did, amen, church? He won a great victory on the cross. He defeated Satan. He defeated the world. He defeated sin. And now he pulls out this enormous 
bag full of spoils and he gives it to his people. What are some of the spoils we've talked about so far? Peace with God, forgiveness of sin, righteousness, resurrection, all that stuff and more he gives to his people. Is it because we're so great? Not at all. It's because of what he has done in his grace. He has given this to his people. Amen. Amen. Let me read one final description of the servant. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that amazing? He's not only the sacrifice that brings us peace, but he's also the high priest that ministers constantly, interceding. Jesus fulfilled that. He satisfied the righteousness of God. And he, at this moment, is praying and interceding for his people right now. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I hope that verse encourages you. Always making intercession for you. you know, I began the message with that question about the suffering and death of Jesus. And perhaps that is the main reason why in Jesus' day, uh, the Jews of his time rejected his claims to be the Messiah. And ongoing, it still is often a reason for rejection. Because there was this belief that the Messiah would only come one time. And when he came, it was over, right? He was the conqueror. Everything was going to be set right. Hopefully you've seen here in Isaiah 53 an enormous amount of evidence that Isaiah 53 predicts that the, that the Messiah must first suffer and die. Jesus adamantly believed Isaiah 53 taught this and that he was the Messiah. The night before his crucifixion, he says to his disciples in Luke twenty two thirty seven. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 and applies it to himself. And I would say that he was absolutely right, wouldn't you? And if Isaiah 53 is not enough, you could also look at Daniel 9.26 Zechariah 13, 7, say the same things. And so church, I want you to understand that, that the Old Testament does indeed predict that the Messiah will first suffer and die. And then he will come again. The Old Testament taught it. Jesus affirms it. And then when the apostles come along and they start preaching, they say the same thing. Acts 3.18, Peter says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Acts 17.2 and 3, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, speaking of the Jews, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It was necessary. Now, in case you're wondering, 
the predominant Jewish view um, of the servant in Isaiah 53 and in our day today is that Isaiah is speaking of the nation of Israel. And it's often said that the, the servant there, the nation of Israel, suffered on behalf of the Gentiles during their exile. Let me just quickly say two reasons why I don't think that adds up. The first is the character of the servant. In verse 11, we just saw that the servant is called the righteous one. Israel is never called the righteous one in Isaiah. Do you remember how the book opened up where it said in verses 4 to 5, Isaiah describes the city this way, or the nation. He says, O ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Israel is not the righteous one. Would you agree from that assessment? Second thing is, is the servant is distinct from Israel. We've seen that already in Isaiah 49. But you see it here. Just go up to verse 8. Read it with me again where it says, The servant was stricken for the transgression of my people. Doesn't make sense to say that Israel was stricken for Israel, right? Israel does not atone for its own sins, especially since it was not righteous. Rather, the righteous servant suffered on behalf of the nation of Israel. In closing, let me just encourage you to meditate on, the, on this passage this week. What a passage, amen? Unbelievable. Let me encourage you to read it through several times and just think hard and long about the glories of this passage, or maybe take a couple of verses a day and just think through and pray about and rejoice and celebrate the great truths that are declared in this passage about a Savior who loves you so much that He was willing to be rejected and despised by men, to suffer and to live a righteous life that none of us live and to die on a cross for you and I. And to see a Savior who rose again and destroyed the bondage of death and who intercedes for you. And oh, how we need to remember that in our daily lives, that Christ is interceding for us. So let us really soak up and fill our hearts with these truths and praise the suffering, but yet the exalted servant. Amen? And also I would encourage us to share this passage with others. This prophecy is like no other. The exact details that Jesus fulfills are remarkable. Sometimes, you know, people read Isaiah 53 and unwittingly think that it's the New Testament <laughs> because the details are so uncanny that they think it's literally talking about Jesus. past week I read a great story about a, a Jewish man who grew up attending synagogue and Hebrew school. He went into the Navy and kind of fell away from his upbringing. But one day he had a conversation with a Christian sailor and they were talking and the sailor asked him to read Isaiah 53 from his own Jewish Bible. And so he read it and he thought he had the wrong Bible. He thought that the other guy had tricked him, right? And he was reading from the wrong Bible. And so they had this conversation, and he writes about this. He says, quote, 
after three hours of talking and reading from both of our Bibles, especially Isaiah 53 and my Jewish Bible, my confusion started to disappear. I understood that I needed the forgiveness offered by Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But I also knew I was Jewish and that Jews do not believe in Jesus. I was so torn that I actually cried that sleepless night, pulling my blanket over my head so that others could not hear my weeping. I then turned on a flashlight so I could read the New Testament my friend had given me. As tears fell down, as tears fell upon the pages of the New Testament, I could no longer resist what I knew I had to do. I prayed to God and told him that I believed Jesus was really the Jewish Messiah. I asked his forgiveness for the many ways I had failed to live as I knew God willed. A few moments later, I went peacefully to sleep and woke up to a brand new life. So let me encourage you to share Isaiah 53 with others, both Jews and Gentiles. The whole world needs to hear the message of this amazing passage. Let me encourage you. If you never have believed in Christ, my prayer is that you would follow the footsteps of the last message where I began talking from Acts chapter 8. Remember the royal official from Ethiopia? How he was reading from Isaiah chapter 53. He didn't understand what it meant. Philip came alongside him, explained what it meant to him, and then the, the royal official believed He understood the pieces came together for him, that Jesus was the one spoken about 700 years ago, and he placed his faith in Christ. And he said, you know what? Let's stop the chariot, because I want to be baptized. Not to become a Christian, but to declare to the world, this Jesus is the one I want to follow for the rest of my days. So let me encourage you, that's never happened in your life, to place your faith and trust in Christ and then to follow in obedience to what Jesus has commanded to declare your faith in baptism to the world. What a great Savior we serve. Amen, church? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we stand in awe of this passage, but most of all, we stand in awe of you. We marvel at your control of all things. We marvel at your inspiration of Scripture. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, how we thank you. We know that we would have been like those who were indifferent or maybe even angry toward you if not for your grace. Thank you for opening our eyes to help us to see that you are indeed the suffering servant who is also the exalted servant. And Lord, I plead with you this morning that you might open the hearts and minds of someone here today who's never truly understood. Put all these things together. May they understand and may they embrace Jesus as their own Savior and Lord. They want to follow you for all their days and to take that first step by declaring their faith through baptism showing the world that they are indeed a follower of you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.